0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Listener supported. WNYC
2: Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay.
3: All right. You're listening Listening to
4: Radio Lab. Lab.
5: Radio
3: Lab. From WNYC. WNYC. See? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Ha <laughs>
6: King, the most noble gas. But if there were she Liam, how fine, wise, life she might be.
7: I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert quillwich This is Radio Lab, and today.
8: Elements. Yeah.
9: I carried your oxygen. And you walked beside me through the lobby commenting on the decor when you needed to stop for breath. Your hand ran light and steady. By the ocean of breath, twice, I remember. I carried your oxygen. It was heavy. A bleak alloy. Alloy. Steel.
7: This hour is a collaboration with poets,
8: like the ones you heard and will hear more of. Musicians. Reporters. And, of course, the periodic table of elements. Speaking of which,
7: our producer, Soren Wheeler, whose sodium spark brain conceived of this entire
5: show... He will lead us off. So this one starts with a story I heard from Jamie Lowe. She's a writer in Brooklyn. And at the heart of this story is this particular 24-hour period in Jamie's life that um, she is uneasy about. Have let's just set it up for
10: one second. So what are we about to watch?
4: I'm not actually exactly sure where it starts, but we're about to watch, I think, the night before Valentine's Day, 2001.
5: I eventually convinced her to sit down with producer Latif Nasser and sort of just walk us through the tape.
10: Go for it. You're you're in control there with the space bar. Alright. Yeah, I'm
4: on. You're on. He's Hey, on the
6: you corner should marry on. Jamie. <laughs> are you gonna marry Jamie, Mike? The video
5: starts, yeah. it's nighttime. Uh Jamie and her friend Mike, he's the one filming. They're outside his apartment in Brooklyn, and the camera is pointed at a bunch of high school students who were just
10: walking by. So what's your deal? Tell tell me so you wanna be an actress, right? Yeah. You what? tell what you need to
4: tell. I love acting. Good for you Shakespeare.
10: Hell yeah. Oh,
11: really?
4: Yeah. That's so oh,
2: cool. by any other name would smell as sweet.
4: Yeah. that is my enemy. enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a
11: Montague. a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any, any other part, part belonging to, belong to a man.
4: To a man. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow here? I'm like egging them on to recite it that dear perfection which he owes without that title and Romeo doff thy name and for thy name which is no part of thee take all my stuff. this is the part of that yeah, you can kind of see him screaming um, are all right so wait I camera eventually to
5: turns to Jamie she's sitting on the stoop a huge curly hair wide eyes and she starts to sing the kids a song
11: it goes you don't call me yesterday cause I can't see you. all right even
10: I, I
4: was pretty convinced that I was, like, a great singer and rapper.
10: She likes the sound of her own voice. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you sing a lot in... No, I ne- never. No. Never. I am not a singer.
4: Wow, I just started singing, like, I don't
6: know, what was it, like, three weeks ago? Was that the one yeah.
10: on the It was fun to watch people react to her. She made people really happy wherever she went. You guys live here? She would, we went to flea markets, and she would talk to people, and she would pull this spark out of them. It, it just felt like New York loved her.
5: That's Mike Ryan, guy holding the camera. He'd only met Jamie just three weeks earlier, not long after he moved to New York, and they pretty much instantly became friends. She was
10: so positive. As I recall, she's talking to some little kids on a stoop. But then it, that next four or five hours was pretty defining. I can remember it, so. Okay, cut to...
4: Mike's apartment, I think.
10: You're just walking around.
4: In a bra and open dress. Sparkly red bra and plastic bag.
10: Plastic bag on the...
4: the, stomach. Belly dancing. You might have to shield your eyes. (laughs) Okay, here we go.
5: Fast forward about four hours.
4: That's Mike, he's sleeping. Oh, boy. Two weeks? Good morning. It's Valentine's Day, 2001. Good morning. That's kumquats and avocados. The kumquats I picked with my grandpa in the kumquat tree three or four days ago. And that's true. Water. There's three breakfast bars.
12: What is all that stuff on, on the cutting board?
4: Cut They're cut-up power misery. bars. bow from the present I gave you that's hiding the cup of wine that we're gonna drink. And again. a cup of wine, of course, at 7.40 in the morning. So
10: do you need a nap or anything at noon, or do you just keep pumping? If
11: I'm tired, I'll
4: sleep. Oh, here's a dollar. Oh, you poor Mike.
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jamie, yeah. what's gonna happen today?
4: Today I'm going to contact MTV to debate Gore, Bush, Nader, or Rock.
10: And Fidel Castro. Show.
4: Yeah, him too. <laughs> He's an amazing man.
10: Debate Fidel Castro, seriously. Okay. And it has to be about... Um,
11: it can be about anything. Right. Anything goes. Do you want to taste this one? Yeah. And butter and chocolate. Were you
10: were, were you meaning that literally that you were going to go on MTV and debate Gore v. Bush? Yes. Or, and then I was.
4: That is exactly what I had in mind
10: for the day. I thought it was make-believe. It seemed harmless. It just didn't occur to me that what I was seeing was somebody who had deviated substantially from who they wanted to be. We
2: have
11: to change the world. Jesus Christ.
10: Eventually,
5: Mike got up, had to go to work. Jamie took off for a while. And then later that day, she showed up at his office. And at first,
10: everything seemed sort of fine. But within 20 minutes, she said, hey, tell you what, can we go to the roof really fast? What? And that immediately got me uncomfortable.
4: So, okay, overpants, floral wraparound skirt. We are now going to the roof.
11: Are you ready to be blown off your feet? No, I'm not. Okay.
4: You can hear he's done. Like, the day has been insane. This is at the end of that day. Snowy 7th Avenue rooftop.
3: What is, what is this? Any finger. What is
4: it?
13: It's a piece of yarn. What
4: is it? A piece of yarn. Mr. Mike Patrick Ryan Will you come tonight to a party.
1: I can after work.
4: Okay. It's at 5.20 on top of the world at the World Trade Center where I want to marry you. Yeah. If you want to. Tonight? Yeah. It's all set up. Jamie. At that point, he was like, done. We're done. Wow.
8: Uh,
4: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
10: That's when it it hit me that um, there is no way that any of this reflects what she would actually want. I don't know if delusional is a kind word here, and if it's not, I apologize, but if she's delusional enough to think that we should get married is she delusional enough to think she can fly? Will she be distraught when I say no, no, and will she, would she jump? And so I lowered the camera and I said, I'm afraid of heights and I want to go downstairs immediately. And I felt for the first time just fear. And I called her, I believe I called her mother first, uh, Leanne. And I just said, "Uh, my name is Mike, I'm a friend of Jamie's, and um, I I think she may be going through something and I don't know what I'm dealing with. I'm in over my head here.
0: When Mike called, I, uh, I just got on a red eye that night.
5: That's Leanne Lantos, Jamie's mom.
0: It was my job to get her to go back to her therapist so that we could get some medication in her.
5: For Leanne, this episode was not entirely a surprise. It had happened once before. When Jamie was in high school.
0: At that time, she was not sleeping at night.
1: Spinning around the room, talking nonstop about how she had to save Central America from disaster.
5: During that first episode, Jamie ended up at a place called the Neuropsychiatric Institute at UCLA. And she ended up being treated by this guy, Dr. Mark D'Antonio. He's a psychiatrist.
1: She was in a very... Acute, manic, psychotic state.
4: I remember being sort of tackled by nurses to actually take my meds because I refused to.
0: We didn't know if we would ever
4: see our Jamie again.
0: You know, that that was the scariest part. Everyone
4: around me, I think, was really, really worried that I wouldn't come back.
5: But she did come back, and it's what brought her back that is actually the reason I got so interested in this story. So... Shortly after she was admitted, uh, Dr. D'Antonio
1: told Jamie's parents... We know what this is and we know how to treat it.
0: He said she's a classic case of of bipolar. There was no question. And Mm. um, the drug of choice is lithium. lithium.
5: Which is not even a drug, but just this...
0: Salt. And he's explained to us, um, you know, that she would need to... um,
1: Take three tablets of lithium, three tablets of this salt.
5: And it could bring her back.
1: When it works, it's just remarkable.
5: Do you have memories of, like, what it was like to come back like that? What you were thinking or what it felt like?
4: It's really hard to describe. It's a little bit of, like, a slow realization of of like, oh, that was a weird thing that I did a week ago. Like, why did I do that?
0: The first time she was actually lucid and coming back to herself again, Mm -hmm. the first words out of her mouth were, Mom, it's not me. (laughs) And I just, uh, that just killed me.
5: Within a few weeks, it was like, The incident never happened.
4: It's so bizarre. I mean, I felt like here was this thing that's assault that I get to just take three of a day. And and that was it. Totally
1: normal. No side effects, no issues. She went off to college.
4: And just, like, flourished, and it was great.
1: Things were good for a long time. And then after about six years, she said, you know, I've been on this pill for six years. I've had no problems. I'd like to go off it.
0: Why don't we try to go off gradually?
1: Then about a month after she was totally off lithium, she was whack.
5: In Mike's apartment up all night.
10: You were so tired just a minute ago.
4: (laughs) that's because you told me I had to leave, but now I'm still here, aren't I?
1: A totally manic episode all over.
4: Because I am whatever you say I am.
1: That's it.
5: One of the things that kind of makes lithium that effect that lithium has so spooky, and you hear this from a lot of people that have taken lithium to treat uh, bipolar, is that
14: lithium itself is so simple. Lithium is... An element, right? It's it's a single atom. This is Ben Lilly.
5: He's a writer, runs the Story Collider podcast. He's had some personal experience with psychiatric drugs, and he's written
14: about lithium. That to me was fascinating. That that a single atom can change what we think of of who we are. I mean, it's not even not just an atom. It's atom number three. It's the third element in the table. Hmm. It's one of the simplest atoms. Right? So it's just three protons, four neutrons, three electrons.
5: That's a pretty simple bit remember, of
14: matter. I mean, it doesn't get much. It really is. This had never struck me when I was on Lexapro or Wellbutrin, which is the other one they put me on. You know, if you look at them, they look like what you expect a pharmaceutical drug to look like. There's a ring of carbon atoms and some other things stuck on it, and they, they look like these big complex molecules. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm complex. My brain's complex. It takes this complicated thing to change it. And then you're confronted with just this atom it was found by accident that it works you it's not complicated to make it's just a salt that you distill out and yet it has this profound effect the other thing i know about lithium that is that is profoundly weird is that you're not just saying my mind my personality is being changed by an atom it's being changed by an atom that was created directly in the big bang itself so you have this atom formed in the big bang goes through whatever it does, winding path to come onto the Earth, gets dug up, turned into a pill, given to someone, and that changes their affect in the world. And that to me is, is just, it's this profound reminder that the, the forces that shape everything in the universe are the same as the forces that are shaping who we are and what we do and, and what our identity is.
5: And it's possible that these forces shape not just the people with bipolar disorder, but all of us. I, think it was a I ended up talking to a clinical psychiatrist, Anna Fells, who told me about these studies.
0: Huge epidemiologic studies. The biggest one, I think, was in Japan. One was in Austria. One was in Greece. Famous one in Texas, in which they looked at communities that had different levels of lithium.
5: Lithium in the water supply. And we're talking about tiny, tiny amounts.
0: Micrograms. Those are a thousandth of the amount in a milligram.
5: If you think of like a pill of lithium, well, we're talking about amounts like 10,000th of a pill. Like that's the amount that we're dealing with here. And these studies found, by and large, in in towns that had a tiny bit more lithium in the water, suicide rates were lower. In some cases, as much as 30%. Wow. I
0: should say the Texas study, which is astonishing, also shows uh, that the towns that have the highest lithium level have lower felonies, thefts, rapes. And these are reputable published studies.
5: Now, these studies are, you know, only showing us correlations, but there does at least seem to be some kind of connection. And I mean, if there is a connection, what the hell is it doing? Do they know
8: why it works in the brain? Like, do they know what it does?
5: Well, essentially, no. It's still kind of a mystery. But here's uh, Mark D'Antonio's theory. He says, we know that bipolar disorder involves a defect in a certain part of the brain.
1: It's an area of the brain that has to do with controlling mood. So believe it or not, there's neurons in the brain that keep your mood even.
5: These neurons, they do their job by sort of passing electricity back and forth. And that electricity is carried by sodium ions. So the whole system is pretty much based on sodium.
1: Lithium is very similar to sodium. So
5: if you have lithium in the brain, the neurons will use that to communicate. They'll send lithium ions back and forth. And here's what's interesting.
1: Lithium works just like sodium. But not as well. Lithium is similar enough in properties that it can be an imposter, but whatever it does, it just doesn't work as well.
5: That's the key, he says.
1: So then this area of the brain, the defective area of the brain, that makes these moods flip on and off so intensely doesn't work as well. And that stops the bipolar episode.
5: That's so interesting that maybe it's sluggishness is what makes it good.
1: Yep. Yep.
5: Although he says that same trick where it can be a sort of sodium imposter, but slower, that can
1: also cause issues. Slight tremors in your hand. You can have nausea. Um, They can affect the kidneys. The balance of sodium in your body is regulated partially through the kidneys, and somehow lithium replacing it can be toxic to the kidneys.
5: Which actually brings us back to Jamie. So,
4: before I went after
5: that episode in New York with Mike and the video, she went back on lithium, and again, she was fine. In fact, for the last 16 years, she's been completely normal. But then A couple months ago,
4: Um, I went to a new primary physician, mostly because I'm lazy and I didn't want to go to the Upper West Side to see my other doctor. And this doctor basically took my blood pressure and was like, you're going to die. You need to go to the ER. Turns
5: out her kidneys were failing. And so she suddenly had to make this choice.
4: That I could sort of just stay on lithium and, you know, go to dialysis and get a transplant or that I had to switch and that now would be when I would switch, that I had enough function left that I could.
5: You you have, you have, are in the middle of that decision now, you feel like, or do you feel like it's decided?
4: I think I'm going to switch. I think I made that decision. It's just that every psychiatrist in New York leaves for August because yeah. I don't know why, but they all disappear for August, all of August, and mine said, you should probably wait to switch until I come <laughs> back. But I, I feel like I have a good group of people around me i have a solid job i it's terrifying to court mania but i also feel like there are a lot of effective drugs and that one of them is going to work they won't be as cool as lithium though depakote sounds like oh god (laughs) it's like you're on depakote
5: As she was in the middle of that decision, Jamie did one last thing. She actually took a trip to Bolivia, which is where much of the world's lithium comes from. There's this place you can go and literally see these massive salt flats, which are just covered in mounds of
4: lithium. I just wanted to see them. I wanted to experience them. I wanted to be near them. So I went It just looks like a hallucination. It looks like somebody could not have conceived of this landscape. You know, you have red lakes and you have flocks of flamingos and this, like, long, salty expanse that goes on forever. Like, it's just huge. It's enormous.
5: Do you go up to a pile and put your hand on it? Yeah, you
4: can. You stand on it and you jump off the pile. And, like, I was making kind of lithium angels and it was awesome. I know I have to go off of it but I really am I mean gratitude is like not even the word it's I feel like this thing allows me to be me. It doesn't define me but it allows for you know functionality and that sounds kind of wonky but it's like every day I get to work and it's because of that like everything you know I'm just I'm grateful to it for its service (laughs) I feel like it's done it's done a lot for for me it worked so hard to get to me too from the big bang to now (laughs)
7: Producer Soren Wheeler. Now, Soren is made of elements, though not of lithium, which we should say, only some of which was made in the Big Bang. Some of it was also made in a supernova, and we'll have one of those coming up. Special thanks to Ben Lilly, Ann Harrington, Kay Redfield-Jameson, Steve Lowe, and of course, Jamie Lowe. Jamie's working on a book about her experiences with bipolar. It will be called Grand Illusions. This is a song from the band Sylvan Esso. We played them the last story in progress, and they wrote a song about it.
11: It's not me you're talking to Gently dancing Beings. Compassion
7: That was Sylvan Esso with Jamie's song.
15: You want to talk
1: bang? Hydrogen was there at zero hundred hours in the coke-colored velodrome of dark matter. Gases, checking gases at infinitum. Chartreuse flare, then a deafening birth. Ions of cosmos, cartwheeling, pink, red, yellow, green, purple, blue, black in the sphere of night. First, I was a star then a stain of water, then a kindergartner.
8: These poems, by the way, come from two events that we held uh, in New York City. We went to uh, Emotive Fruition, which is a wonderful organization run by Thomas Dooley, Uh, who is himself a poet, he summoned poets from all around the metropolitan area, and for two nights they came to the Bell House in Brooklyn, Botanic Lab in Manhattan. And so far we have heard Hydrogen by Sarah Sala, read by
7: Ramsey Faragala. Helium by Christine Quintana, read by Jonice Abbott-Pratt. And uh, I Carried Your Oxygen, a poem by David McLaughlin, read by Sam Breslin-Wright. So next up.
16: I'm going to give you three claps. I don't know if you need that, but just... just in case you need okay. to sync it. There you it's
8: go.
7: Like a TV guy. <laughs> okay, so a while back, we ended up talking to a guy named Derek Muller who makes a YouTube channel
16: called Veritasium.
7: Super popular channel about uh, science and engineering. And we called him because he's making a documentary about uranium. And we got to talking about what happens when you take two uh, protons or neutrons and you just whack, put them together.
16: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely nuts.
7: And that I mean, led to is- this really interesting conversation about the beginning of of all elements
16: i mean i feel like a little bit of backstory is worth saying here one really important thing to know is that combining nuclei gives you energy
7: he says when you slam two particles together they get squished and in the squishing they lose a little mass
16: that mass gets emitted as energy this is e equals mc squared That's what's happening in the sun right now. So the sun is taking protons, individual protons, and smashing them together, combining them. And that gives you energy, the energy of the sun. Their lost mass is the sunlight that we bask in. It was mass.
7: I have never thought of light as as former mass. Yeah. That's what a star does, he says. It smashes little atoms, like hydrogen, together to make bigger atoms, like helium, and then bigger atoms, like carbon, and then even bigger atoms, like oxygen. And every little collision it's doing generates some energy which keeps the star going
16: stars live by this process of sticking nuclei together going from smaller nuclei making bigger nuclei the heavier the star the more this smashing and bashing they can do in their core and the bigger and bigger nuclei they can form
7: but there are limits six million years ago there was a star giant star way bigger than our sun And uh, it was just doing its thing, taking atoms,
16: and smashing them together, combining
7: You know, it's taking hydrogen atoms and making helium, taking helium atoms and
16: making carbon, making oxygen.
7: And as it's smashing all these nuclei together, it's releasing energy and getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
16: But then, there comes a point where sticking nuclei together no longer gives you energy.
7: And that point is element number 26.
16: Iron. Once you've formed iron, if you're a star, that's the end of life as you know it. Because iron, iron is incredibly stable. One of the most stable nuclei in the universe. Its
7: protons are tightly packed in there and so you can't force any more energy out of
16: them. Which means you have a core which is no longer gonna give you energy
8: you can't cook up anything higher than than the iron that's it But what happens
7: to the star does it just become a big hunk
16: what happens is everything starts to collapse
7: gravity takes over
16: that's the thing a star maintains its size by the fact that there's all this energy going out
7: So this dead iron core starts pulling everything back in.
16: And at this point, all of that stuff which is headed inwards...
7: Aluminum, oxygen, carbon, magnesium, silicon...
16: ...starts rubbing against each other. And it starts getting real hot and real dense. And all of a sudden, you get...
8: The supernova. That was the most pathetic supernova explosion I've was ever a,
16: Can you put in a sound
8: <laughs> effect to make yes, that sound we'll better? Yes, have to put in a much like that. Was it done. is actually our specialty. So even though
7: we know there are no sounds in space, for the purposes of your enjoyment, we present to you...
16: The Supernova. So here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of The Supernova. In the ridiculous excesses of energy that are there in the supernova, right, in that ridiculously huge explosion, the biggest in the universe, there is so much energy there that actually what happens is you form these nuclei which would not form under any other conditions.
7: You know, iron hits carbon to form germanium, silicon hits oxygen to form titanium. You start to get all of these bigger elements.
16: Including, like, gold, including the gold in your wedding ring. They need that extreme, ridiculous, excess of energy to form. And then... It's done. And what are you left with? You're left with a giant field of debris. Uh, There's carbon, there's oxygen, there's iron, there's silicon, there's hydrogen, there's helium. And it starts to clump together due to gravity and the center of that uh, which clumps together is our sun is mostly hydrogen and helium and it's like 99 percent of all the mass in our solar system and then the other chunks other bits and pieces start to clump together as well they have a bit more angular momentum so they're spinning around the outside and those are your planetesimals your early planets and
7: and that is eventually how you get the earth and all of us this is where we come so you're saying this is the birth of everything past iron
16: yeah exactly exactly I
7: feel like an idiot but I think I get it for the very first time so post supernova like in the in the milliseconds post supernova you have lots you have the whole periodic table hurling through space
16: yeah you do you really do
2: You can
8: find Derek Muller most days on his YouTube channel, Veritasium. His documentary, (laughs) Uranium Twisting the Dragon's Tail, will soon appear on PBS. It has already, in fact, appeared. It has even already appeared on PBS, and for some crazy reason, it passed me by. Coming up, a story that will make you wish the Cold War wasn't over. Not me. Not me. I'm, I'm happy it's over.
13: This is Hester Fuller calling from the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
7: Science reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.
13: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab.
10: Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more people like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Next
7: up, producer Molly Webster and Carmen.
2: All right.
17: um...
7: (laughs) Okay, you just want to launch in?
17: (laughs) Yeah. So, science...
2: And (laughs) Yay This is my
17: this is my new thing with my sisters. I just always go hashtag science because they get really sick of me trying to teach the kids sciencey lessons. (laughs) Hashtag science it. Okay, so one of the biggest mysteries in biology is how old am I?
7: That that doesn't seem like a mystery.
17: (laughs) Well, I mean, like, obviously, I'm Molly Webster, who's 32 years old, who has lived, you know, through 32 birthdays, I guess. But this is a question of like, we know that some cells in our body regenerate. And so it's like, how old are those cells? Like, how old is my heart right now? Mm -hmm. Or like, how old my eyeball? Or how old is my nose? Spleen. The northwest corner of my kidney.
8: Mm. Is this like, like uh, am, you know, if I'm three years old and now I'm 33 years old, do the cells in the 33-year-old, are they the same as, are any of them the same as the one when I was three? Is that the question? Yeah,
17: that's one of the questions. Are any of them the same? If they're not the same, then how often do they change? Mm. Because if you understand that, then you might be able to, like, solve injuries, help people heal faster, or fix diseases where cells are, you know, messed up, like psoriasis or anemia or ALS or something like that. But also, it just seems so cool to be able to be like, "Oh, that chunk of my heart is from 1997," yes, that's or like yes. that other super chunk cool. of my heart is from 1983. Yes, and like Oh, that... I
8: would love to know that. At the party of Robert, I would want to meet the original Robert Cell. So, I, if, I, if there's anybody who's been here since 1947, I'd love to just say hello. <laughs> and if you just joined me in 2015, well, that's nice. I mean, I... right?
17: It would be super cool. Yeah. So. One of the questions they've had for a long time is, is there a way that we can try to date cells? And so they're like, well, we can't really send anything into the body because that can be toxic. So the answer for a long time had been no. And then 2002-ish, this little idea pops up. And it's something called the bomb pulse.
8: B O M B,
17: bomb. B O M B, and then pulse, P U L S E. Bomb pulse. Yeah. To explain.
2: Five, four, three, two. There it goes. goes. In the
17: 1940s and 50s, we all know this. We.
2: Christmas color. There is the ground wave. It is over, folks.
17: We tested a lot of atomic bombs.
2: It worked. It worked.
17: There is a huge The first test was in 1945, Trinity Test, New Mexico. A few weeks later...
1: The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima.
17: Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We shall continue to use it. So then as World War II comes to an end, the rest of the world just tries to catch up to the U.S. The Reds are to explode a huge bomb of 50 megatons. The Russians... (laughs) Then after the Russians...
18: Britain
17: fires its first H-bomb. The British, the French, the whole Cold War basically just continues to unspool. All in all, over 400 atomic tests went off above ground between 19, 1945 and 1963. Just
18: imagine if only one atom bomb were to be dropped on an American city. Thousands of persons would be killed instantly.
7: That was a sucky time.
17: Well, hashtag science. It <laughs> uh, was one good thing potentially one good thing popped out and that is an answer to the question of how old are we
7: that somehow came out of the bomb tests. yeah how, how?
17: um let me explain do it so with every one of those detonations when an atomic bomb goes off it would shoot a whole bunch of stuff up into the atmosphere all of these like radioactive elements like cesium and plutonium and all these things But also, that explosion shoots up a bunch of neutrons, and the neutron will crash into nitrogen that's floating in our atmosphere and create C14. It's a very special type of carbon. It has two extra particles in it. Now, as all that bad radioactive stuff starts falling out of the atmosphere back to the ground, C14 doesn't fall out of the sky. It just sort of floats there. And what happened is... Over time, the wind currents carried C-14 from these test sites and just spread it all over the planet. And this C-14, which is just totally like normal carbon, not harmful, it just bonds with oxygen and it gets sucked up into plants. And then animals eat the plants, and then we eat the animals or we eat the plants. And then suddenly the C-14 is in us. Huh. So we all have like a little bit of the atomic age in us.
7: Wait, but I wasn't even born in 1963, so w- why would it be in me?
17: That is the cool thing because it hangs out in the air for a long time, so it's it's actually still up there.
8: Hmm. But why it, does this have anything to do with dating anything?
17: Yeah, so I'm about to tell you that. Hey, are you there?
10: Hi. Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah.
17: Perfect. Perfect.
10: I'm Bruce Buchholz. I'm a senior scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Jonas Frisian, professor of stem
15: cell research at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm.
17: So in the early 2000s, Jonas is staring down this question of like, how do I date cells? And at a certain point, he gets together with Bruce because he comes up with this idea, which is just, oh, maybe we just look up. So
10: there are... There are some groups in Europe. There's one in particular that's been measuring the atmosphere every two weeks since the late 1950s. Oh my god! Which is it's it's an incredible data record.
17: Bruce says what the scientists have done is they've taken all of these measurements and they put them into one chart so you can see the amount of C14 in the atmosphere over time.
10: So we we have this basically uh, basically a calendar, and I could I could send you a picture so you can see what
16: see what the graph looks like.
17: Yeah, I'd love to see a picture. What you see on that graph is this, according to Jonas. I'm
16: to 1955 it's a pretty flat line with very little variation but then suddenly in 1955
17: with all the bomb tests
16: there's a very sharp increase a lot of carbon-14
10: very dramatic increase that's why they called it a pulse
17: and that increase goes all the way up to 1963
18: when... The Kremlin, fortress of communist doctrine is the setting of an historic event. When
17: the U.S., the U.K. and the Soviet Union agree to stop exploding atomic bombs above ground. The signing of an atom test ban.
15: After
7: that, there's uh, a gradual decline.
17: And, you know, they're just measuring it all the way down so they can just say, oh, like, here's where it was in 1980, here's where it was in 1990... 2000, 2010, this right here is the coolest part because the amount of C14 in the atmosphere at any given moment is directly reflected in our cells, right? So if there's like that much C14 in the atmosphere in September 1972, then that is going to be mirrored in cells that were born in September 1972. So it is like this totally perfect birthday calendar
10: we can see approximately how long have they been there for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years
17: it's so like once this idea got out every like scientists all over the world were like
10: oh yeah
11: oh give me your attention there's been a new invention
10: it didn't it take long to see that this might be something cool to do
17: it came about because they made a big atomic bomb
19: So just to give you a quick sense of some of the work that came out of this, I spoke to one scientist. I'm Kirsty Spaulding, and I work at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. She was working with Jonas, and they figured out how to use C14 in brains. I mean, first of all, the basic question was, can adult humans make new neurons? She says that for like 100 years... The dogma had always been that the neurons we're born with are the ones we die with. The problem was she had no way to investigate this. She couldn't use it in humans,
17: even if they were dead humans... Until she figured out a technique where she could, like, extract brain cells and see how much C14 was in there.
19: Yeah, exactly. And it turns out the next best thing to a human is a horse. Because horses can live for quite some years. Decades. So every second Tuesday, I would go out to the local abattoir. The local slaughterhouse. An hour away. And, I mean, I was a vegetarian surrounded by carcasses. And they would bring the horse's head out to me. And I had to figure out how to get the brain out of its head. Wait, and- What? So you actually had to, like, cut open the skull and get to the brain yourself? I mean, the second time I went, I took my boyfriend with me (laughs) because I was like, I can't do this physically. They actually had a circular saw, and I actually discovered that the the skull, the the bone across the top, the nose of the horse is is quite thin. So that was a much easier access point. This is really gross discussion. (laughs) Did you ever see your research going that way? No, absolutely not. Not at all. But what she saw when she finally moved her research from horse heads to humans was turnover. We found quite robust levels of new neurons in adulthood.
11: Tick, 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 tick. Tick, tick?
17: Once Jonas's team showed that this worked, scientists got excited and people started to date things and not just cells. So, can I tell you the ages? Sure. Okay. The baseline ages we knew before C- 14. Was that skin was like 14 days old?
8: 14. Four, oh, that's only 14, 14 days, days
17: old? 14 days. Yeah, so it's like two weeks. Oh. Um, the surface level of your gut, the like the skin on your gut, I guess, was five days.
8: Five days. So that's
17: even shorter than skin. That's, that's like the surface wow. of the intestine. So,
8: oh, the surface of the intestine. Yeah, The lining. The
17: lining. That's oh, like, well,
8: that's because that's everything. Scraping yeah. all that food going down. So though. that doesn't surprise me.
17: And then with C14, the the deeper muscly part of the intestine, the average is 15.1 years.
8: 15.1 years. Oh, big difference Wait,
17: between 15.9. 15.9, okay, years 15.9 years
8: old. 15.9 years. <laughs>
17: fat cells was another one that they did uh, 10 years old.
8: 10 years old.
17: Yeah.
7: Interesting. Why would a fat cell need to last that long?
17: Ten years, because it's perverse, just to torture you. Yes, fat cells are mean cells.
7: But honestly, do they have have any idea? They don't know. Do they know that like what would be one of the the oldest
17: part of us? Your um, your cortex, which is uh, like the part of your brain that does like abstract thinking or your voluntary movements, that's as old as you are.
8: Really? Huh.
17: So if you want to know one of the oldest parts of you, the oldest cell is probably in your... uh, Super
8: thinky part of your brain.
17: It'll be like your cortical neuron.
8: Well, that fits if I think of myself as the stories I tell myself. Like when you get Alzheimer's and you lose your stories and you lose your mind, like people say.
17: But the interesting thing, though, is the hippocampus is where you keep all your memories. And they saw that your hippocampus does make a bunch of new... Neurons. Yeah,
16: so in the hippocampus...
17: That's Jonas Friesen again.
16: An adult gets approximately 1,400 new hippocampal neurons per day. Really?
17: Yeah, and then each of those neurons will live like 20, maybe 30 years.
7: So does that mean that the part of Robert's brain where he keeps the stories he tells himself, that part is being made new every 20 or 30 years?
17: Yeah. It's
7: a strange thing that like your oldest stories could be stored in baby little neurons.
8: That is weird. Yeah. I remember going to Kyoto and it's like the oldest, most beautiful temple in Kyoto. It has exactly the form that it had, you know, hundreds of years ago. But when you walk in the, the walls and the floors and the roofing, and they've been restored. They've been restored actually over and over again. Because in Japan, what they call old is the form. It's the shape of the building. You go to Athens, though, and you go up to the Acropolis and you stand in the Parthenon, there you're standing in the very temple that Pericles stood in. It's the same place exactly, same materials. so like in the, in Greece, they believe that the original stuff is the is what you preserve, and in japan they don't they think it's just the form. And I was thinking that this thing you're doing is sort of a little bit like that like I, I was thinking I'm much more Greek than I am Japanese. <laughs> Because I want to know like what my original cells are, if they, where they are in me.
2: Yeah.
7: But my question is actually more basic. It's like, why does part of me get to be re- reborn and the other parts of me don't? Like, why not all of me? get to be reborn (laughs) (laughs)
17: because if all of you was being reborn you would just crumple into dust no but i mean (laughs) why not why does only certain parts get to regenerate it's interesting because they don't know they said the next they said basically this question of how old is a cell they said no one was asking everyone wondered this but no one was asking this question because they never had the tools to ask it so now they're just starting to ask those questions it's but there's a problem This bomb pulse that we've been dependent on in the last decade to start answering all these questions is going away. Really? Every day, a little more of that C14
19: gets sucked out of the air. So So how
8: much time do we have left? 15
19: years. It's gone by 2030, give or take. Yeah. So we need to get questions answered now because we really are working against the clock for many things we want to look at. I talked to this Alzheimer's researcher who was trying
17: to figure out like the chronology of the disease, like when certain like pathologies form in the brain and he was kind of just like i just wish i had a little more time and when i think about this like i was thinking about this on the subway this morning like i was looking around and i was thinking you know i'm on the l train it's a bunch of like 30 year old kids or something and i was like these they're all reading or something drinking their expensive lattes like, these people are so far away from thinking about the Cold War or atomic bombs or anything like that. And they're all walking around with, like, the secret signal from the atomic period inside of them. And then that little signal is, like, binging out, like, knowledge about their shoulder and their elbow and their liver and the west side of their liver and the east side of their liver and, like, different parts of their heart. And the fact that it's now going away and how, like, someone born in... 2042 is just going to be really boring, and like, there's going to be no, they're you know, not going to have any insights into who they are, yeah, which but- sort of makes me inclined to very peacefully want to explode another atomic bomb. What?
8: No, 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 and no. <laughs> Why? You forget all the poisons that it, that is not mm-hmm. a benign event that's sort of an experimental picker upper. That is extra, <laughs> extra stuff Don't in the air. do kill
17: my dream, <laughs> yeah, I Robin. have
8: to kill your dream because it's about- a dumb, dumb dream. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: God have given us a brand new power What mm-hmm. to use for the good of all mankind mm-hmm. Some people want to use to destroy everything
6: To use for the good I of all the God. On the
1: atomic telephone. Well, then no man knows its power. Oh, only God alone. Well, then it can cure the sick or destroy the evil with one sweep of power known by God alone.
8: producer molly webster and special thanks to henry druid and mark lovell
9: happy valentine's day magnesium i'd go blind watching you burn magnesium iodine is cute the way it sublimates and yes i'll put lithium in water to watch it scoot about but my heart belongs to you magnesium The hot white flame, the abandon, the slowness of you becoming your own fuse. Mercury is beautiful, yes, but it's you, Magnesium. The way you burn for me. The way you leave nothing of yourself behind.
6: We are flying over Greenland. Your elbow is too close to mine on the airplane armrest. Down there, they are excavating uranium from beneath the Arctic ice and selling indiscriminately. Though from here, I can only see the white of ice sheets and glacier topped mountains. This is an island of fishing rigs and colorful houses, cod and catfish stew and tomato cream. Once I thought every isotope in me is radioactive. I make the people who love me sick. This is a teenage way of thinking. But you have uncovered a glowing spark in the pristine, frozen places within me.
7: That was Uranium from poet Emily Hockaday, read by Jonice Abbott-Pratt. And before that... Happy Valentine's Day, Magnesium, by Jason Schneiderman, performed by Sam Breslin Wright. Everybody has a middle name in this thing, Sam yeah, they Breslin do. Wright. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Coming
8: up, we're going to get into an elevator, push the button, and go down, and I mean all, all the way, way down. down. I'm Robert Louis Colvich,
7: <laughs> Chad Nicholas Abumrad. Yeah, we'll continue in a moment.
9: Hi, this is Pilar Castro from Bogota, Colombia. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology. In the modern world, more information about Sloan at
2: www.sloan.org. Muchas gracias, Radio Lab.
7: Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Grilwich. This is Radio Lab, and today, F- it elements.
14: <laughs> We're doing it. <laughs> We're doing it. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, and and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium.
8: satirist town, Lear.
14: There's yttrium, eterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium.
7: Okay, so we have this periodic table of elements, which is a list of the simplest bits of matter that we know of. And so theoretically, everything that we see, everything that we are, is made of the stuff that is in that table. That's sort of the beauty of the periodic table, is that it describes everything right?
2: Yeah.
8: (laughs) Yeah, About 45 years ago, a scientist named Vera Rubin was studying the motion of the galaxies. You know how the galaxies just spin in a beautiful way around, like in spirals? And her calculations did not explain why the galaxies were holding together. And she figured, nope, there's got to be some stuff that I can't see around the galaxies that explain why they move the way they do. What is that stuff? Whatever it is, it's not interacting with the matter of our world hardly at all. Otherwise, we'd see it.
18: It's indeed why we call it dark. Dark matter is the dominant uh, 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 matter component in the universe.
8: That's experimental physicist Rick Gateskill.
18: The 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 stuff you and I are made of the you know these, these conventional protons. It's the flotsam and jetsam of the matter world. It's, it's cast uh, on a sea of dark matter. We're talking about, in terms of the total composition of the universe, you and I, the stuff we're made of is 4.5%. <laughs>
8: The other 95.5% is this stuff, the dark matter, the dark energy,
18: which theoretically is all, all around us. If you cup your hands, you, you, you have a dark matter particle in your hand. The, the problem or the challenge is that it is so weakly interacting that it will pass straight through you and in fact will pass straight through the Earth and will have very little probability of interacting.
7: But what if you could get one of these little bastards to interact? Then, I mean, forget the periodic table, then you would meet the most fundamental element of them all.
12: City of Leed, historic hometown.
7: We're going to tell you about an experiment now, this bizarre experiment, and we sent our producers Andy Mills and Damiano Marchetti to check it out.
16: Right, right here. You think it's this close?
7: It is happening in South Dakota, in the Black Hills, in this little town called Leed.
12: Man, I have not seen this many trees in so long.
7: Incredibly beautiful, picturesque little town. But right near the town, as you crest over this hill,
3: that's it. Oh, that's a deep cut.
7: You'll see this mountain that looks like it's just been torn open.
12: No, we uh we pulled over and we walked over to the edge of this thing, and it was like peering down into an ancient volcano. That's not what I thought and it just would look carved like. Carved out that hill
3: in this town there is one of the deepest man-made holes on the planet that's where the experiment is
12: and it's there because way
15: down deep in that hole it's demonstrably the quietest place in the universe
12: that is Kent Myers he's a writer Uh, the quietest thing will make
3: sense in a second
12: he wrote an article in Harper's Magazine recently that is all about this experiment and
15: this hole I was interested in the idea of of these frontiers that the Frontier. Where where are you from, Frontier? I'm from Minnesota. Oh, there you go. People tell me I sound like I'm from from the movie Fargo. Let me join them.
12: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Kent says that this story, it starts off way back in the Old West.
8: A hardy frontier,
15: wild, rugged. 1874, General Custer and crew. Custer comes out looking for this gold and finds it. Gold on the mountains, in the rivers, and in the dark depths far below the surface of the earth. And just like that, 10,000 people within two years are just invading, illegally invading the Black Hills, which were uh, the Great Sioux Reservation. And By 1901, the miners blast
12: 1,500 feet down. By 1927, 3,500 feet down. By 1975, it's 8,000 feet deep to put that into perspective.
18: That's a sort of mile and a half. Would you say a mile and a half? Is, yeah, is that... they literally move mountains.
12: Oh, it's immense. Imagine six empire state buildings going straight down.
8: And gold is that valuable that you could put that kind of effort and energy into it. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah.
15: But what happened is that eventually the price of gold dropped to the point where the size of the mine... Was just unsustainable. When you're mining eight thousand feet down, you know, for every foot you go down, your price increases, your costs increase. You got to haul it further. You've got to air condition the mine. You've got to pump out the groundwater. You have to run electrical lines down there. You've got. And so, in two thousand one,
3: you know, after one hundred and twenty-six years of being in operation, the mine shut down. Did it create a ghost town? I mean, did, how did well? This place?
15: was the fear. This was the fear that we were just going to have a the whole the whole economy of this. Part of the country was going to fall apart. But as this was happening...
18: We saw an
8: opportunity there.
15: These physicists realized that this was a, go- a golden opportunity.
8: Wait, wait, wait. Before we, like, I don't know, like, how, are, do phys- do experimental physicists, do they love holes? I mean, is just an old tradition? <laughs> yeah, they're just in love with
15: holes. They're just like dwarves. <laughs> no, no, no. This is where we get to that idea of quiet.
12: This experiment, it needs a kind of quiet that you cannot find on the surface of the Earth.
18: When you and I are sitting on the surface of the Earth, we're not acutely aware of it, but we are being hit by cosmic rays at a rate that I think really rather amazes people. If you simply hold your hand out, three or four times a second, a cosmic ray is going through your hand and it's going right through it, and that's every second. Uh, so your your body is literally bathed in thousands of these every second.
15: We are just being bombarded with uh, a din. Rick Gateskill talks about it like being in the middle of a, a stadium
18: during the Super Bowl. And this is as though everybody in this arena is clapping.
12: And now just imagine that in the middle of all this chaos, There is one person leaning over to their friend and whispering a secret into their ear.
15: Dark matter is like the whisper.
18: It'll be lost in the noise.
15: We have to cut out all this noise in order to even
18: come close to hearing it. And... It turns out putting a mile of rock between you and the uh, clappers is, is taking you a lot of the way there.
12: Yeah, it's a great sound. So Rick took us into this mine through these massive iron doors, down these Woo! long underground tunnels, Hello! into a room where we met this guy. What's your name and, and who are you? Mike Soonich grew up in Leeds, South Dakota. I'm the fourth generation that's been hanging around the Homestake Mine. Mike worked at the mine, so did his dad. Both my grandfathers were Homestake veterans. Uh, Most kids that Mike went to school with and his dad went to school with, they worked at the mines. And my grandmother's father on my dad's side was also a miner.
3: But now... Now he works in a room where he basically equips scientists with all their safety gear and stuff.
12: Gotta have your belt on. He gave us these boots and a respirator.
3: If you catch on fire, you want to be able to breathe, right? <laughs> That's what you want to hear in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually... Um,
18: oh, okay. more
3: they climb into this old steel service elevator.
18: A little farther.
3: South cage is a 41. South cage 41. Lower
12: south cage. And then we just start rocketing downward. We're going
1: so fast. The speed at which
18: we're moving is sort of equivalent to you know, the speed at which an aeroplane often, you know, when it's descending. At a thousand feet, our ears pop.
3: At 2,000 feet, this sort of wet, muddy smell sort of wafts up. And as we're dropping, all that
18: noise is getting slowly filtered out. We're able to literally use the rock uh, to absorb these cosmic ray particles. After about 10 minutes,
3: the elevator stops. Whoa. Hey guys, here. Thank you guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: And we step out. 4,850 feet down.
12: This is a f- cave man.
3: It looks like
12: a cave. It's got um, a dome-like ceiling and walls that are just carved rock. So what is that sound? It's water. That's the sound of rain coming through a whole lot of rock. To be clear, it's not raining outside. It's not raining up up in
15: the world. It's just groundwater.
3: According to Kemp, it's costing over a million dollars a year.
15: Just to run the pumps to drain that water. So that gives you some- A million dollars a year?
3: Yeah. But Rick says down here? Like this
12: is the least amount of radiation that we will ever experience in our lives.
18: It is quite dramatic. It's about three million less uh, cosmic rays. So when you hold your hand out, less than one every few months. January. Coming through your hand now. March. March. But that isn't, that isn't the end of the story.
3: So we're going to step inside here. The very first step, we actually even have a nice... The other, the other it
12: turns room, out that even, even if you cut out all the rays coming from the outside, uh, there are still rays that that coming off of
18: us. You and I, we carry a certain amount of uranium and thorium, uh, these radioactive elements in us. So...
19: Okay, so what we're going to do is you're going to take your cover all soft.
3: A woman named Robin Barlin made us change clothes.
19: So can you take that machine out?
3: Yeah. Okay. Scrubbed our stuff.
19: Oh, the microphone. I'm
3: going to wipe this. Is that OK? Yeah. And then Rick takes us into the lab where the experiment happens. It's this all-white room with this huge tank in
2: the middle.
18: The uh, tank uh, uh, contains 70,000 gallons of high-purity uh, water and was you know, directly inside it. And we can, without fear of disrupting the experiment, one can. Uh,
12: the experiment actually happens inside this tank.
18: One can Bang, the outside of the uh, of, of steel container.
12: The whole this idea is that this water will actually filter out even more radiation. That makes
3: it very quiet. But still, it's not quiet enough. <laughs> and so inside that tank of water, they put an even smaller tank of the element xenon.
18: About a third of a ton of liquid xenon. Where do we find xenon on the periodic table? Where, what is it? Xenon is number uh, uh, 54. 54. It's over on the right-hand side so that, that we have this... Uh, imperially named uh, set of elements we call the noble elements.
8: I mean, they're just too good for everybody else. They interact hardly at all.
18: That's right. You really struggle to make xenon interact with, uh, with any other atoms.
12: Which is just another way of saying that inside of this tank of xenon, which is inside of this tank of water, which is down in
15: one of the biggest holes ever dug by man, it is really, 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 quiet it's demonstrably the, the quietest place in the universe i mean you can't pre- you you don't know that it is because there could be somewhere some quieter place but as far as we know the the center of this lux detector is the the quietest place that, that we human beings know of and what's supposed to happen
7: inside this super quiet xenon space
12: so the idea that you have here is that this cloud of xenon it's just waiting And the thought is that when a dark matter particle that's like zooming around all the time, when that zooms through this xenon, because it is so quiet in there, because there is nothing else happening in there, that dark matter particle, even though it's not supposed to interact with anything from our world, that particle, if it disturbs, if it nudges in any way,
3: any of the atoms of the xenon will notice it. And that tiny little disturbance, whenever it happens, Ken says, you can think of that moment as the universe whispering to us.
15: The, the whisper in human nature, the, the whisper is a point where we really, when we really want to speak intently to a single person, we whisper. When, when you know, we whisper at funerals, we whisper in the presence of awesome things in nature, we, we you know, it's that, it's that reduced use of the voice that drops down and drops down to only goes into the ear it's intended for it's it's Isaiah's call you know he's lying on his mat and he hears the whisper because he knows that's for me alone that call is for me alone and that's that's that sense that this experiment gives to me is that here the universe has been shouting and shouting and shouting and shouting at us and we've gathered all this scientific knowledge out of the shout, out of the clapping, out of the cheers. And now where we're at uh, in the 21st century is, is we're, we're going down to what's it saying in the whisper. And those whispers go clear back to conception. They go clear back to birth. Uh, if we understand these whispers, we're very close to understanding gestation. And and I got carried away there, but oh, we love you really, yeah.
7: (laughs) Okay, and did you get to hear the whisper, see the disturbance, whatever it is? Did you meet the dark matter? Well, how can I give this to you lightly? Uh,
18: Okay, so this this is confession time. I've I've been looking for dark matter for twenty seven years, and so far, we have yet to see a convincing set of uh interactions that are associated with this dark matter and that's it, it nothing at all yeah nothing but rick hasn't given up hope
3: uh i mean he sort of never gives up hope <laughs> but, i mean he says maybe we just need to build a bigger more
18: sensitive detector that's of course exactly what we're doing instead of their current one which has a third of a ton of xenon we are now designing and building a detector that's going to be uh, 10 tons You see, so he <laughs> says even there who knows? The uncertainty we have to deal with is is, is at least a factor of ten million. And
2: ten thousand. And 20, the other 25.
3: pretty disappointing thing is that when you're in this room, like in the room with the Lux detector, that's supposed to be the quietest place in the universe, it's loud. It's crazy loud. There are sounds
12: that I can only describe as robots dying. And, l- like, listen to this.
7: Was there any moment that was quiet? Like, quiety quiet? Like, deep quiet? Feely quiet? Well,
3: sort of. After we, w- we went to the Lux had some time to kill, and um, they took us into the raw part of the mine where they used to mine for gold, and um, they just sort of walked us through these old tunnels.
12: You scared? A little bit, yeah.
3: And you're you're walking through the black, and all you hear is, like, the sound of our feet crunching. The wind is being sucked down. It's kind of rushing through the tunnels. Shh. And it's the silence, it's it's not like a it's not like the science of like, oh the street is really quiet outside of my bedroom. It's got like an energy to it. It's like I got it's got like this. It's kind of like when you're running and when you stop running and the absence of your exertion sort of fills you. Yeah. It's like that moment where the absence of the noise sort of becomes palpable. And that's, for me, the moment, not standing in the laboratory. For me, that moment was the moment where I'm like, now I am standing at the center of the xenon. I don't think I ever, ever have felt that before.
8: Producer Damiano Marchetti and Andy Mills. We have had Damiano with us for almost a year, and it's been a total pleasure. He is moving on, but we wish him... What do you like to wish him? I wish him quiet.
7: But the good kind of quiet. You know, the kind that has energy. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know, the whoop, whoop, whoop guy. That kind. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Damiano. Huge thanks to Thomas Dooley. We had original music this hour from 1 Thrix Point Never, Sylvan Esso, Kevin
8: Drum, Ken Camden, and V.J. Iyer. Thanks also to Matt Capist and to Connie Walter and to the folks at Sanford Underground Research Facility for letting us visit them and stay and stay and ask so many questions and finally leave. Yeah, which is what we're about to do. I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich.
7: Thanks for listening.
2: Message 2. New.
16: This is Jamie Lowe. This is Kent Myers. Hey, this is Derek Muller calling to read the credits. And I just wanted to do this because I think all these people's names are awesome. I mean, tell me you don't agree. Radio Lab is produced by
1: Jad Abumrad. Our
16: staff
15: includes Brenna Farrell, Ellen Horn, David Gable, Dylan Keith, Matt Kielty, Andy Mills, Tiff Nasser, Kelsey Padgett, Arian Wax,
6: Molly Webster, Soren
15: Wheeler, and Jamie York. Who are these people? It sounds like a crime-fighting team, you know,
16: when you got the Kelsey Padgett and the Soren Wheeler. With help from Simon Adler, Kathy Tu, Molly McBride-Jacobson, and Alexandra Lee Young. Our fact checkers are Eva
15: Dasher and Michelle Harris.
16: I mean, tell me those aren't cool names. Eva Dasher? Oh, I just love these names. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, I don't know if you guys have time for a plug, but if, if you haven't checked out Veritasium, you might just want to go check that out. The element
2: of truth. All right, bye. End of message.